Hear the word of God from a selection of passages from the New Testament. John 17, 20 through 26. My prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known to them, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. Romans twelve three through 8 For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, I'm on. Okay, there you go. 
It is so good to be able to worship with all of you this morning. It's so good to see your faces. Can I be honest with you guys? My wife used to make fun of me. There's, has everybody seen the Lego movie? The first one? There's a theme song in that movie called Everything is Awesome. And uh, my wife would say that's kind of like my theme song of my life. She thinks I wake up singing that song. I wake up going, everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. So that was kind of like my theme song. But can I tell you guys something? I just read about this uh, great Christian leader who passed away in the early 2000s um, named Evie Hill. And he was a civil rights activist, an incredible Christian leader, um, and he would say something. Every morning he would wake up, and the first thing that he would say every single morning that he woke up was, thank you, Jesus. No matter what was going on, no matter you know, if he didn't get enough sleep that night, he woke up and he eventually passed away from pneumonia and other issues that he had. But even the day that he died, he woke up and that, it was said about him that he said, thank you, Jesus. And it's something just so profound in my heart that just made me have to just share that with you this morning. It's something so incredible that he had breath in his lungs and because he had breath in his lungs, because he woke up again, he was able to confidently just say, thank you, Jesus. And I love the way he started his day. They used to ask him, you know, what kept you humble? He was given a big platform. He was given um, a lot large stage. People would listen to him. He, he knew a lot of important people. He prayed for presidents and all that stuff. But people, he was known as a, as a humble, humble man. And people would ask him, what made you so humble? And he just didn't know. Like, it's kind of one of those awkward questions. What makes you so awesome? You're like, uh, uh. What makes you so humble? So he didn't know how to answer that question. He's kind of, he's like, put off and he didn't know what, what to say and he made this statement he said I, I, Jesus I, I don't know and I love the fact that when he woke up every morning he said thank you Jesus it did something for him one he thanked Jesus obviously but it put in perspective each day as a gift as a blessing and also that he relied each day and the only thing that allowed him to wake up the only thing that gave him breath each morning was his beautiful relationship this incredible Jesus that he had and that he knew. So when I say good morning to you, when I say it's a beautiful morning, and when I say it's so good to see you, guys, can you hear my heart when I say, I, th I say thank you, Jesus, that we get to say that to each other. That we get to come into this place and with freedom and with open hearts, with vulnerability, with all the issues that are happening in our lives, and all the issues that are happening in our world, we can still look at each other and say good morning and mean it. We get to be in a place where we can be known and we can love each other. We can be imperfect. We can say that everything is awesome. We can say, oh, stuff is struggling. Life is hard. But we can still come in and say, thank you, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Waypoint, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm a little kind of off put by my sermon this morning because it's so different from what we usually do. Usually, guys, at Waypoint, what we preach on is we usually preach through books of the Bible. And typically, when we preach through books of the Bible, we'll go Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. We don't typically jump. We don't typically do, pretty much ever, do topical sermons. It's usually like, oh, the book of John. And as a matter of fact, two weeks from now, we're actually starting in our series in the book of Revelation. So that's going to be a lot of fun. You guys will be like, yes. Some of you might be like that. I'm kind of like, oh, no. But I'm loving and excited. We actually have a goal here at Waypoint that if you've been here from the very beginning in 10 years, we preach through every single book of the Bible. So we preach through books of the Bible. So today's different though. Today, with last two weeks and next week included, we did kind of mini short series on what it means to be the local church. What it means to be the gathered body. What does that look like in our culture and in our context? How do we act that out? How do we flesh out the church? 
And so two weeks ago, I kind of went through from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, kind of what it meant to be the assembly, the local body gathered together. Last week, Pastor Danny talked about who do we worship? What's the purpose of our gathering? He talked about the triune God that we worship. He talked about when we gather together, we get to experience and worship his mercies, his presence, and his glory, all manifested in one location, in one spot. Today, we're gonna to talk about another concept that I say over and over again. This concept I, I say over and over again here at Waypoint Church. When people ask me, people like to you know, talk to pastors and they're like, hey, give me some advice. And a lot of times, they, they kind of want simple, straightforward advice. They want me to tell them, do this or don't do that. They come up to me, hey, pastor, should I take this job? You know, pastor, should I move or should I do this? And I'm like, I was like, I don't know. That's always, I mean, most of you guys know this. If you come to me for counsel, usually what I say to you is say, I have no idea. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll counsel you, I'll listen to you, we'll talk about it, but I have no idea. But typically, one of my most common phrases I say over and over again is, you need to live in the tension. That's a phrase I say over and over again, this idea that I believe where we're called to live as Christians is this place that I call living in the tension. So today's sermon is going to address the issue of how we can be unified as a church with differences pulling us apart. How do we handle that? We heard earlier read in John chapter 1, what can I pray for you? Jesus literally prayed. What he wanted was his body, his church to be one. How do we practically live and worship in community in the local church together when we're all so very different? I, mean, I feel like it's so easy to be a community together when we're all very similar, right? That's what we see most of the time. Martin Luther King used to quote somebody else when he used to say that the most segregated place in America was church on Sunday mornings. You guys know what I'm talking about? This statement is true often because we see that it's easier to bring people together who are very similar. When you have people who are similar, you have similar likes, passions, experiences, personalities, uh, social economic statuses, they tend to gravitate towards each other. It's human, it's just easier. But when we're different, when we're different racially, culturally, experientially, it's harder to come together. There's too many things to argue about, too many things to take priority. Can I be honest and real with you guys? When I told my parents when I was a kid, uh, not a kid, when I was a high school or college age student, when I told my parents I wanted to be a pastor, my mom wept and cried like a whole bunch. She said, what do you mean you're not gonna be a doctor? You're not Asian? No, that's seriously. <laughs> she was freaking out, she said, you gotta be an engineer, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's all the, your only choices that exist in this world for you. But when I told her, I said, mom, I'm, 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 just, I'm serious, I'm, I'm gonna be a pastor. That's, that's what I wanna be, I feel God's called me to be a vocational pastor. And my mom said, okay. And she said something so profound to me. She said, all right, Lawrence, here's the deal. You better get much better at speaking Korean. <laughs> I said, mom, how, how does that have anything to do with being a pastor? I'm like, he said, your Korean's pathetic, Lawrence. I'm like, I know. I speak like a five-year-old. That's okay. I, I can get away with that. And she goes, no, here's what I mean. You're never going to be a pastor in the South in America of a non-Korean church. That's the only way. Because who's going to go to your church on Korean people? And can I be honest with you guys? And I look around this room, and I know I've shared this with you before, but I can't help it. I just got to share it again with my heart and how much I love you guys and how much I appreciate you guys. Not because you showed my mom wrong, but that's kind of like, ha <laughs> But because we show the power of the gospel in this place. Because she's right. I mean, she is. 99.9999% of the time, she's right. My only Korean pastor friends I know all pastor pretty much all Korean churches. 
she's right. But I thank you guys so much, and you guys show the power of the gospel, and then you guys let me be a pastor here. Side note, sorry. See, it's easier to get together when we're alike. It's easier when you're similar to come together. We all know this. There's too many points, but I truly believe when we find the difference, the tension points and differences, when we live in the tension, that's when we live to the max of what God's called us to be. When there's differences coming together beautifully. When our differences come together wonderfully and you find that beautiful balance, that beautiful tension, that's when you do it fully and well. I'll give you another example of this really quickly. It's like me and my wife. We're 100% pretty much different in every way there is possible to be different, right? But when we work together and our differences come and they meet each other in that beautiful tension point, you know, of organization and spontaneity, you know, of, of that beautiful tension point of outgoing and introverted, we see incredible ministry and fruit happening together. It's like a strings of a violin. When you find the right tension point of a string, when it lives in beautiful tension, beautiful music happens. If it's too loose, the string is too loose and it gets flat and sounds not very good, but if it's too tight, the string will pop. But it's that beautiful tension when the string is held in perfect tension that you see the most beautiful music happening. The right amount of tension leads to beautiful. Living in tension is absolutely essential. That's what I want to talk about today. You've heard me say this over and over again. We're called to live in tension as Christians, as followers of Jesus in this world, and that's our sweet spot. And for most of you, the, pe- the idea of living in tension is difficult and awkward because the idea of living in tension is, is hard. It's like a balancing act. You don't want to sway too far one way or the other, or tension can often lead to conflict, and conflict is uncomfortable. It can lead to uncomfortable situations that you typically want to avoid. Most people are normal. They're humans. They don't want tension. They don't want conflict. They don't want awkward situations. You guys ever been in those awkward, uncomfortable situations where people out are like working out their differences, but doing it right in front of you in like a passive-aggressive way? That's no good. It's so awkward, right? For most people, they want to run as far away from those situations as possible. It's full of tensions, cringeworthy moments. I actually know some people who love that stuff, actually. They love being in the awkward. For them, it's like watching a reality TV show. They can't get enough. They're like, yes, I will attend a dinner party where your ex-girlfriend and the mother of your first children are there with your new wife and throw in your mother-in-law. Yeah, that'd be fun. More awkward, the better. Give me some popcorn. But not me. And not most of us, right? Like most people, potential conflict scares me. Trying to balance tension in relationships is frightening. Because like most people, I've seen my share of family splits, church splits, broken relationships. Conflict often means splits. So we run away from any sort of tension, but that's not healthy. Most of us have been burned by experiences in our past. We don't want tension. It makes us cringe, it makes us shy away, it makes us feel uncomfortable. But let me tell you that healthy tension needs to exist for the church to live in true community and for our church to continue to grow together. Tension begets energy. We can't walk without the tension between our calves, thighs, bones, and ligaments. We can't see without the tension of focus in our eyes. Now, specifically, what do I believe we're called to live in tension? What do I mean by being called to live in tension? So I'm going to give you two categories of disagreements or two places and ways that we may disagree in the church, but we still need to live in tension. Erica and Danny were really helpful in kind of formulating these thoughts with me in one of the conversations that we had. And the first category is biblical disagreements. 
This is the first area of division or conflict is under the idea of biblical disagreements. This is a tough topic because there are areas in the Bible that if people disagree on, it should lead to separation. You don't need to live in tension point of whether or not Jesus is real. If the church can't decide that one fully, then probably that isn't the right church for you. Just throwing that out there. But there are other areas. So underneath the biblical disagreements, there's two other areas I want you to look at. It's called paradox and ambiguity. Right? There's paradox and intentional ambiguity. And under biblical disagreements, I want to point out these two different types of disagreements. One is places in the Bible where paradox seems to exist, so it leads to confusion on how to live in response. Paradox is all over the Bible, and by that I mean it feels as if it's intentionally paradoxical. What I mean by this term paradox is opposite statements or almost contradictory ideas being presented as truth. Let me give you some examples, right? The idea of sovereignty of God and human will and responsibility. That's a tough one, isn't it? Your mind's like, <laughs> The idea of becoming great, one must become less. The intersection on, on living in grace or living on truth. God's justice versus love. The call to suffer or the call to live victoriously. Or prosperity versus uh, 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 poverty. These seem like paradoxical ideas. We have a hard time with these statements because often we want simple, straightforward answers. These seemingly contradictory ideas or principles in the Bible leave us confused on how to act in certain circumstances. So sometimes in the church we fight. We fight over these sentiments. We, we go too far one way or the other. We focus too much on, oh, we just gotta suffer. It's the goal to suffer, we just need to suffer. Or, oh, God wants us to have as much money as possible. Bring on the gold. I don't know why I said gold. Yeah, I mean, I could have said money, cash, but gold, I don't know. That's, yeah, exactly. bring on the Bitcoin, there you go. We lean heavily towards grace, or tend only to focus on the truth. The thing is, I believe the answer of biblical paradox is living in the tension. We live in the tension of speaking truth and grace to people. We live in the tension of suffering and prosperity. We live in the tension of being in this world, but not of it. Do you see what I'm talking about here? God wants us to live in that intention, so he intentionally created what we see as paradoxes. In living such a way, we start to see the beauty of scripture and how incredible it is that it withstands all times and cultures. You see, what's happening is the Bible's written in such a manner that yes, there are times that you're called to embrace suffering and poverty. But there are also times where you're called to embrace victory and prosperity. And so the Bible is written intentionally, paradoxically, so that when the times happen, you can, you can say that, well, the Bible doesn't tell you one way or the other because you don't know when that time is going to happen for you. Do you see? Do you see how beautiful this work of the Bible is? That it stands the test of time. It stands the test of culture. It stands the test of circumstances that change all the time. But if you go one way or the other, if you, don't, if you just embrace prosperity, well, you know that's a false gospel. But if you embrace, well, I, all I need to do is just suffer all the time, and God's just a God that just wants me to suffer all the time, well, that's a false gospel too. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Number two under that subcategory is intentional ambiguity. There's another source of biblical disagreement that may come up in the life of the church, and it's difficult that arises from areas of the Bible that isn't explicitly clear on how to think or act. Right, what I mean by that is the Bible isn't clear. It doesn't specifically tell us how to deal with social media. I mean, obviously, social media didn't exist when the Bible was written. Revelation chapter 50 does not say how to handle Facebook and Twitter and political arguments on Facebook or Twitter. The Bible doesn't say should you homeschool, private school, or public school our children. 
Other issues like how to interpret the creation account. Right? Is it completely literal? Is it, is, it, is it like you read an encyclopedia or a textbook? Is it like a work of literature? Is it poetry? How should you exactly read it? The Bible doesn't tell us to use the NIV or the RSV or the NLT or the LYT. The LYT is a Lawrence U translation. <laughs> back, one of the age-old debates back in the day was should we use projectors or hymnals? Anybody ever had that debate in their church before? I don't want to date anybody or anything, but I still remember this. Right? It was a huge issue. Should we use a projector or a hymnal? Because only hymnals are of glory to God. Because the books are better. This was an issue, but none of this existed in the Bible. There were no hymnals in the Bible. There were, as we know it, there, were, there, there wasn't a projector in the Bible. But that was an argument. How about this one? Exactly how much should you give to the local church? 10%? 20? Till it hurts? Define hurts. Sacrificially and joyfully? Can you really do both? So then no defined number? Ah! <laughs> what do I do? I don't know. I love when people ask me that question too. Because as a pastor, people will ask me that question. They're like, Lawrence, about money. What should I do? And I'm sitting here, I'm like, listen, you know I'm a pastor, right? And they're like, yeah, that's why I'm asking you. Then I say, okay, I still tell them, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't. But here's the thing, and here's why I love. You see, there are things in the Bible that are intentionally ambiguous. Because the Bible, God wants us to find the tension of living in that ambiguity. Because if we knew all the answers, if we knew how to handle it, number one, the Bible would be a bazillion, quadrillion, a million, bajillion, those are all awesome numbers, pages long, and we'd never be able to read it all. If the Bible told us what to do with AC or pews or colors of carpet, then if he told us step by step what everything we, we need to do, then number one, the Bible would be too long. But number two, then we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. I want you to hear, my people, I want you to hear this. This is, I don't want you to miss this. That God calls us to live in the tension of ambiguity in the Bible because in that tension place that we rely on the Holy Spirit to guide us. It's when we honestly don't know all the answers. When the Bible isn't sure, hey, should you homeschool, should you public school, should you private school? You don't know? Okay, what's the Holy Spirit guiding you? How's the Holy Spirit leading you? Do you hear what I'm saying? There's a reason why he's called a counselor. There's a reason why Jesus said it's better for you and for me to be gone so that you can have the counselor guiding you. But here's the problem. We don't want the counselor. We want the book to just tell us what to do, and it doesn't work that way. The counselor is better for you as the counselor speaks, as the counselor guides you. And so there's this ambiguity, and then what we need to do then with each other is that the Holy Spirit might be speaking different to Nathan as he's speaking to Danny. Not about things of who Jesus is, but whether or not Nathan should homeschool or Danny should public school, whatever it may be. And then if that's the case, if they're different and they're different and that's okay, then we need to live in the beautiful tension and say, hey, that's okay, we'll agree to disagree on this topic, but I'll love you in it. And I'll trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you just like he's speaking to me. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you hear what I'm talking about? Are you with me? Because in that beautiful ambiguity, there's a humility that you acknowledge and say, I don't have all the answers. I don't know the exact answer of how much you should give to the church. I don't. Let the Holy Spirit speak that to you. Right? And I'm not going to compare what that is to this person over here. But too often we play this comparison game in the church and say, well, the Bible's telling me to do this, and I should do this. Guys, can I tell you this? I'm just going to be real with you. 
I know so many incredible biblical scholars who will say the same thing they don't know is the most common answer when somebody asks them a question about Bible stuff. And if all these incredible biblical scholars can say, I don't know, then how can you say with such confidence this is the only way to interpret scripture? Do you hear me? Guys, there's a humility that comes when you embrace the biblical ambiguity at times. I come. So that I can't say, oh, the biblical way to handle Twitter is that if you only tweet about, I don't know, your kids, I don't know. <laughs> and the non-biblical way is when you tweet about what food you eat. Or Insta- the only good way to use Instagram is to take pictures of your meals. Guys, it's not that way. It doesn't exist like that. There's this beautiful tension place that we need to find when we say we take the principles of Scripture and we live in the tension that we're not knowing for sure one way or the other and in the community and body together and we let the Holy Spirit speak to each of us and we love each other and give each other the benefit of the doubt. Does that make sense? I know it's murky sometimes, but in in the murkiness, we need to shine light of the Spirit to guide our past. Maybe some of the ambiguity is necessary for us to learn to trust the Spirit more. Okay, the second category then. This is the first category has been all biblical um, kind of differences. Second category is the second category of disagreements is personal differences. What I mean by that is we have issues and see the world differently because we all have differences that drive us. Personalities, experiences, race, culture, life stages, and more. The reality is that we're all different people and different people who gather together to worship our triune God. It is inevitable people who are different coming together, living together, serving together, worshiping together equates to and will lead to disagreements. It is inevitable. I mean, two people get stranded on an island, they will probably end up being two churches. That's just what's going to happen. We're human beings, right? Under this heading, I also believe there are personal differences occur in biblical interpretation and in everyday living. So we have this, under this category of personal differences, there's like kind of subcategory A, it's differences leading to biblical differences and differences leading to life conflict. Here's some examples of what I'm talking about, what I mean by that. People from an honor-shame culture might read the Bible differently from people from this culture, right? People in America typically come from more of a guilt-innocence culture. So while this culture is looking to place blame and guilt and remove that, honor-shame culture is looking to remove the shame of guilt. That's why in this culture we love the idea of atonement and you love the sacrifice of Jesus. He died in my place and my debt has been paid. We love those sentiments. That's why we focus on that so much in the Bible, right? But if you're from an honor-shame culture, you might look at it a little differently. You might read it and see it more corporately and see how sin has led to a ruining of name. One's familiar corporate identity has been shaken to its core, but Christ restores that identity and redemption. You see, there's a kind of a different focus, a different way of looking at the Bible. Is one right or the other wrong? No. And see, there's, there's no one, there's not one way, one culture, one way to read it from what culture you're coming from. We're all results of our experiences and our culture. We need to understand that tension exists because we're all different people. Another example might be there's people out there who are really passionate about justice. Justice of God and justice on the streets and justice, justice. I love justice. Justice is a great word. But when they read the Bible, all they read is justice. But there are other people who are like, I'm passionate about orphans. So when they read the Bible, all they read about is, oh, it's all about orphans and adoption. Other people might read it on the, oh, it's all about the kingdom. And there's just different themes that they pick out because of their experiences or what their passion might be has led them to read the Bible a certain way. 
Maybe for me, for you, it's like all about grace, 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 because you're like, oh, I get to get away with everything. No, I'm just kidding. That's not why. <laughs> There's different tension points that exist, and what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We need to embrace our differences and live in the tension that it creates. We need to learn. If you're from a guilt and innocence culture, learn from the honor-shame culture. Live in that tension of both. If you're from the honor-shame culture, learn from the guilt and innocence culture. If you're all about justice, learn from those about mercy, who are all about mercy and grace. If you're all about um, the idea of, of what one thing or another, that's beautiful. God made you that way. And I think your experiences, the way you've been taught, he got uniquely shaped you. Guys, can I tell you, I need you to help me interpret the Bible. You'd be like, what? Why? Because I believe this, I truly believe this, is that we all have our own ways of reading the Bible. And some of the best Bible studies I've ever been on is when people come and they read it from a totally different perspective. And they open up and I'm like, what? Oh, I never thought of it like that. Oh, that's how you read that? That is so cool. Guys, this is the beauty of living in tension. Yes to a God of justice. Yes to a God of mercy. Yes to a God of of the way you're seeing him, the way he's moved you and shaped your life to be. And we need to live in that tension because that way we get the max benefit of seeing it. And there's also differences then that lead to life conflict or in other words, personal differences. What I mean by this heading of disagreement is personal is that our race, culture, life stage makes conflicts and disagreements inevitable, right? People with little children are often at different places in their lives than people that are empty nesters or students in college, right? It may be difficult to connect across life stages. The United States has been notorious for people of different races not coming together in a church setting. That's why we see so many mono-ethnic churches in America, specifically the South. We see this because, honestly, there's a shared common experience so often in racial um, dynamics. There's a shared common understanding. And some people don't want to have to take the time, and not, it's, not, it's not, a, not, not a blame one way or the other, but it's, sometimes it's very difficult and exhausting to take the time to explain past hurts and traumas. And oftentimes it's exhausting to have to explain you're not carrying any weight or you're not carrying the, the prejudices of the past. Or it's exhausting sometimes just to have constant misunderstanding and constant explaining. Have to happen with each other. I know that it's hard work. But if you walk away from the tension of the hard work of racial relationships, can't tell you that what we lead to is more and more mono-ethnic silos and more and more division. And more and more a painting of the gospel that is not strong enough to bring people who are different together. But when you do the hard work, when you are vulnerable, when you're willing to be hurt, when you're willing to make mistakes and admit your guilt and your issues, when you're willing to live in the tension that occurs naturally of different races coming together, can I tell you something? God does something so beautiful. He makes the most incredible music. He paints the most beautiful picture. Guys, it's living in the tension that we're called to do. So what do we do as a church with all this? We know we have people from different backgrounds, different life stages, different cultures, different races. What do we do? 
And I said, we do the hard work of coming together and living in tension. We choose to live in tension. And that sometimes is hard, guys, when, when, you, when you feel a string being taught, you know it's a little delicate, right? I remember, I always remember when Nathan would play guitar sometimes, he'd break a string when he'd lead worship. I'm like, oh, those strings were very delicate. And you're scared, you don't want to break a string when you're leading worship in front of a lot of people. They haven't done that in a while, Nathan, so I'm going to use that as an example. <laughs> and that's the risk we run into, right? When there's tension, you, you could break the string, and it could hurt it could hurt you, it could hurt others, and you don't want to do that, so you think it's easier to step away. But we choose to be vulnerable. We choose to walk in it because the music that it makes is so much better. Even at times when I play a little off note here and there. Even at times where it might get close to popping here and there. We still choose to come together because it's more beautiful together. Can I get an amen to that? And we do this because together is what Jesus prayed for. Because together we are the kingdom of God. My people, we're called to live in tension, this beautiful balance of seeing the world and scripture with the help of your brother. This takes such humility. You need to value one another and know that we need, to, we need each other to read the word well, to live out our faith with purpose, to help see the world. Tension makes beautiful music. Waypoint in Philippians chapter two that was read earlier. It says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul is calling us in this passage to be united and to have one mind and spirit. That doesn't mean blanket uniformity. It means passion and a heart for Jesus in tension with different ideas, thoughts, and peoples. And the key to all of this, what Paul is saying, the key to this, and the key to this all by people is this, is spirit-filled humility. Let me say that again. The key to this is spirit-filled humility. He's saying it's Christ-like humility. It's Christ-likeness that Jesus lived and showed us as an example in this beautiful hymn that comes after that. It's this humbleness that says, I will lay myself down because for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of God, for the kingdom's advancement, and for the beautiful music, it is better. I will lay myself down. I'll become vulnerable. I will listen to others. I will hear that I'm not, I, don't, I won't think that I'm the only way that knows how to read the Bible. I'm not the only person that knows everything. I won't think that my political views are the only correct views. I won't think that my way of understanding the world is the only way. I will understand and I'll appreciate the experiences and the cultures and the people around me. I will value the way they read the Bible. I will listen to them. Spirit-filled humility. John Stott said, in every aspect of the Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. Let me say that again. In every aspect of Christian life, pride is our greatest foe and humility our greatest ally. When you live in the tension, when you're called to live in the tension, humility is our greatest ally. There's no tension if you're always right. There's no tension if you always know what the best answer is. But also no beautiful music. 
really quickly, I'm just going to fly over this because I don't have much time. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Ligon Duncan has given us eight ways to, to fight pride and to stay humble. So I'm just going to share with this. I love this. Number one is you reflect on the cross. You think about the cross. You think about this hymn. This is what this hymn talked about. Is that he, Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross. You, you reflect on the cross. Two, you use the means of grace. What does that mean, means of grace? What we mean by that is the sacraments, the gathering together of the church body, the taking of communion, the baptisms, of the, the prayer of the saints in communion together, where you see means of grace as a means of, of seeing the grace of God becoming humble. Three, you study God. I mean, study him. See his nature, his attributes, his character. See how great he is. For you study grace. Oh, what amazing grace has been bestowed upon you. You study sin. And when I say study sin, it doesn't mean I'm like, oh, I'll study sin. No, no, it doesn't mean that. It means first, study and embrace your own depravity, your own sinfulness. Be willing to confess that. And not only be willing to confess that, it goes into my next one. Uh, not only be willing to confess that, but also be willing to let others point it out in you. That's a tough one, right? Not many of you guys are willing for that. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. Not, most of you guys are like, uh-uh. You might say, yeah, that's a good point, Lawrence. No. Inside, you're like, don't say anything to me. <laughs> I get it. It's hard. But what if we lived in such comfortable community like that? What if you were able to come to me and I was able to come to you and be like, man, I love you so much, but I think you're really struggling with this. I love you too much to just let you keep on doing it. Can I walk with you in that? Identify grace in others. Look at other people who are walking with such grace and point it out to them, encourage them by it, point it out to them and say, hey, I, I would love to see that replicated in my life. What are you doing to nurture that? Encourage and serve others. I tell you, there's something so incredible is when you're encouraging and loving and serving other people that humility starts naturally taking effect in you, right? And last, this kind of goes with study, saying invite and pursue correction. Don't think you're so better than everybody else that you can't get better. Can I tell you something? Please hear me very well. One of my phrases I hate is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I hate that phrase. I do. Not because I've ever tried teaching an old dog new tricks. I've never done that before. I've never actually tried to find an old dog and teach it new tricks. Never tried that. But it's, when we take it to apply to ourselves as human beings, as followers of Jesus, it's like, oh, it's just the way I am. That's why I used to love doing youth ministry, man. In youth ministry, you see kids change and become like Jesus and, and love God. And in campus ministry, you see the same thing happen. He's like, you see change happen and it's like immediately rewarding. You're like, yes. But then for some reason, adults are like, eh. We don't change. You get older, we don't change. Can I tell you that is anti the Bible? The Bible says something different. It says there's a process of sanctification that started in you, and it's not done yet. So you should be changing. And if you're one of those people that says, I don't change, and old people can't teach old times, no, 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 then you're not being biblical. And it also says that he started a good work in you, he's faithful to complete it. My people, we should change. My prayer is in 10 years, in 20 years, in 50 years from now, if I'm still on this earth, my prayer is that I'm more like Jesus then.
I'm more like Jesus. But can I also tell you something, though? What I define by looking more like Jesus is might be different. He's not here right now, so I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. Pastor Jim is actually having, going in for surgery soon, so he shared with me that he won't be here for a few weeks. But Pastor Jim has been following the Lord for a while now. He's, he's almost, how old is he now, Susan, or Sharon? 85, 80, I think he's 85 years old. And Pastor Jim, to me, looks more like Jesus. You see, he walks in humility. Pastor Jim has years of experience. He's been studying the word. He's been pastoring churches. But he just walks in humility all the time. And the great saints of old, the great saints that I admire, what I see as they, get, as they go closer to becoming more, looking more and more like Jesus, what I see more and more is not more dynamic speaking. It's not more an ability to win people for the gospel or win people for Jesus. It's not uh, more of a profound intellect in studying the Bible. What I see are people who become more like Jesus are people who are more humble. I see humility. And Pastor Jim shows us that all the time. Humility. Invite and pursue correction. I went a little longer than I wanted to go today, but Waypoint Church, I want you to invite you to live in the tension. Thank you that in spite of our differences, you've called us to be a body together. God, we thank you that you love us so much that your actual prayer for us is to be one, is to be united. And you've given us this place and this body to do it. So God, will you help us to live in the tension? God, will you guide us? Holy Spirit, will you will you teach us how to, to embrace differences, to be humble? God, to, to continue.